In those days, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Today, we take a big leap or jump or however you want to call it, from a golden calf and wandering in the desert to life in the promised land. And in those days, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. 300 years, give or take, has elapsed since the people cried out to Aaron, make gods for us. And that amount of time might seem just like a blip in the radar, a drop in the bucket for the big biblical story, but also it's, it's a longer than the time our nation has existed, just for reference. And still, all that time and settling into a long-awaited promised land, homeland, and about a dozen God-appointed judges later, and still we find in those days all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Does anything ever change? It's like, finally, Israel, you've made it, you got it, you're home, but you still haven't arrived. Even after all that, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's actually how the book of Judges ends, the very last sentence. What a legacy. The next movement we get in the bigger story of the biblical narrative comes by way of the book of 1 Samuel, and that's actually where we find ourselves today. And I find myself thinking, can anything change? Can God do something? Let's see. Here is how the story goes. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. Penina had children. Hannah had no children. And Now this man used to go up year by year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. One day, uh, or on the day when Elkanah would go up and sacrifice, he would give portions to his wife Penina and to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, Hannah's rival, used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So on it went, year by year. So often as she went up and they went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting 
next to the doorway of the temple, she, Hannah, was deeply distressed and wept bitterly before the Lord. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if you would only look on the misery of your servant and remember me and will not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall neither drink wine nor intoxicants and no razor shall ever touch his head. She continued praying before the Lord. And as she did, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you continue to make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, no, no, my Lord. I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong, strong drink, but I have been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation this whole time. Then Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition that you have made of him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your sight. And the woman went to her quarters. She ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Samuel, for she said, I have asked him of the Lord. And then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and those who were hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might does one prevail. The Lord, his adversaries, shall be shattered. The Most High will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
this narrative, among so many other things, offers us a desperate question and an astonishing answer. Maybe you caught it too. We'll get to them, but first, there's this scene from the 1991 movie called Grand Canyon. Maybe you've seen it, or maybe you recognize it. Pastor and theologian and pillar friend Neil Plantinga reflects on this movie in a book of his. I won't tell you the name of his book quite yet because that will give away the punchline. One of the characters in the movie, an immigration attorney, attempts to bypass a traffic jam on his way home one night, and it takes him, his bypass takes him down streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted as he goes, unshockingly, perhaps, to the viewer at this point. The expensive car stalls out on one of those alarming streets whose teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers, as Plantinga puts it. This is how he continues to retell the story. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck, but before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with bodily harm. Then, just in time, the tow truck shows up and its driver, an earnest, genial man, begins to hook up to the disabled car. The toughs protest. The truck driver is interrupting their meal. So the driver takes the leader of the group aside and attempts a five-sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. The book's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And it's just one of so many stories that illustrate what we all know. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. And things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And one woman, a nobody, 3,000 years ago, so easily overlooked, easily explained away as a drunken lunatic, one of an innumerable amount of people to cross the temple steps, one woman in the midst of it all offers God a desperate question. Will you remember me? Will you remember me? Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. It was true some 1,100 years ago, B.C., as our story in 1 Samuel begins, it's clear that things aren't right. It's in the local pain of a woman in crisis, consumed with longing for the impossible. It's in the national pain of a people in crisis who long for a king and who do what they deem is right. Both Hannah and the nation of Israel are in the promised land, but they haven't arrived. Even the promised land falls short of the kingdom of God. Will you remember me? 
And it was true in 1991 when the scene of the movie Grand Canyon was created 29 years ago in what seems like a lifetime ago. Well, for me, it was a lifetime ago before smartphones and even cell phones or instant gratification through high-speed internet or real-time news at your fingertips. And still, fear, pain, grief, loss, violence. Will you remember me? And it's true today. There's the personal pain. Maybe you identify with Hannah's longing more than anyone could know. Maybe your barrenness comes by way of something else, a broken relationship, a COVID bubble you're alone in, pain that's overwhelming, a job that's unfulfilling. Will you remember me? It's not all that hard to notice our own version of systemic crisis too. All the people did what was right in their own eyes and the church continues to divide. Justice seems fleeting in systems of inequity. Fear seems to win against love. Will you remember me? It's the question of one who is at their end, near the bottom, a prayer of desperation. And Hannah and myself can't be the only ones who've prayed it. Because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. But in this story, at least, it's a desperate question that brings about an unexpected, some might even call it an astonishing answer. And I think you'll want to know how. But as we do, is it all right if I give ourselves just a gentle reminder of something pretty important? Can I do that just real quick? Hannah isn't the main character of her story, of this story. And I don't, I don't want to have to say it. Don't make me say it. You're not the main character of your story either. If that's hard to hear, I understand. It also might illustrate my point. Hannah and Elkanah and that horrible sister wife, Penina, and you and me and our stories of joy and pain, all of us are wrapped up in the big story. The big story in which the only main character is God and what he is doing. And to her credit, Hannah seems to get that, which is why she would not only make such a bargain with God as she did, but do so joyfully. After her desperate prayer and her question, even before the answer is given to her, we're told, and her countenance was sad no longer. Somehow her act of worship made it better. And upon the birth, at the birth of her long-awaited child, her resulting prayer doesn't 
even actually reflect on, focus on her circumstance, but on the God who is and on the God who's doing something. It's as though getting her child, the answer to her desperate prayer was a glorious day for Hannah, but giving him back was even better. So yes, this story isn't about Hannah, and our stories aren't really about us. Our stories are God's story, and yet in the middle of that all, we still find a God who makes himself known to us, who constantly comes down to us, and who, yes, remembers. Chapter 1, verse 19, we're told, the Lord remembered Hannah, and in due time, she's given a son. She's given an answer. But there's more, and this is where the astonishing part comes in. If you remember, Hannah's desperate question comes out of both personal and systemic. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Even as Hannah's life is in chaos and crisis, Israel's, her nation's life is in chaos and crisis as well. I wonder what that's like. So get this, Hannah's son is named Samuel. Samuel, dedicated to the Lord, becomes the mediator who would arguably affect the greatest change in this portion of Israel's history. He emerges as a leader who calls forth King David and moves Israel closer and forward in their awaiting of Christ. Samuel moves the nation toward Christ, who comes years later, also out of misery, an unwed mother, named Mary, whose own prayer at that time echoes Hannah's and whose child, whose own child, Mary's child, becomes the ultimate mediator and savior for the world. This nobody named Hannah is a precursor for the mother of Jesus. This nobody named Hannah who offers a desperate question and prayer altered the history of the world. Her prayer helped pave the way for the one who is now coming back to make all things new and the only one who has the power to make right the world and make it the way it's supposed to be. Do you see? This is not Hannah's story. This is not your story. This is God's story, but that's good news. That's the best news because in God's story, Desperate questions bring about astonishing answers. In God's story, God remembered Hannah in the biggest way possible. In God's story, nobody is forgotten and nobody is overlooked. So that means any time a desperate prayer is offered an answer, there are cosmic implications Anytime a mom or a dad prays for a child, anytime the lonely one prays for a relationship, anytime a heart prays to heal, I don't know how God will choose to bring about the fulfillment of that desire or even in the way we ask for it, but I know that whatever his answer is, there is potential for huge kingdom impact. 
watch for it, wait for it, be a part of it. You get to point to and call forth as well the light, Jesus. That's why we have the rooster, by the way, in case you were wondering, calling forth the light. George Floyd would have turned 37 or 47 this past week. And I wonder if it's possible that the desperate cries of his family and his loved ones could possibly in, in this time impact the hearts of a nation. That because of him and then so many others, including the church, might be called to action to bring about change for a nation, for a world. I wonder. It happened for Hannah. It's happening today. Is there a chance that God could remember you too in whatever desperation you carry? Is there a chance that you're an important part of his story and that his remembering of you could impact not just you, but the flourishing of his kingdom on earth. Is it possible? Could God do something? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.